0: Hi ladies, welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelly Davis, I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team and I'm always glad to be here with you studying the Word of God. I wanna shout out a welcome to my friends at West Campus. I get to be with them every week as well. We're glad you're all here opening your Bibles together. We're gonna take a a journey through three chapters in Genesis this morning, so open up to chapter 45. I'm gonna warn you, we're going to be back and forth in those chapters, so be ready. You know, God's providence is a big subject, and I wanna start this morning by personalizing it a little bit for you. Last year, about this time, I received a call from a great friend of mine and she shared with me that her new grandbaby was going to be tested to rule out something called a tethered spinal cord. Now she asked if I would call them because in a previous life, I had a nursing career and so she thought I might be helpful to them sorting out some of the questions and issues that they might have as they walked through this. And of course, I loved her kids as much as I loved her, so I was more than willing to do that and to answer questions and to pray with them. But unfortunately, I didn't know anything about a tethered spinal cord. I'd never heard of the condition before. So, of course, you can find anything on the web these days. So, I went to some pretty sophisticated neurosurgery, pediatric neurosurgery websites and began to read up on tethered spinal cord before I called these sweet kiddos. And as I read, I discovered a couple of things. From what she had told me, I discovered that this little baby probably did not have a tethered spinal cord. The second thing I discovered is that one of my grandchildren, who lived half a world away in Okinawa, probably did have a tethered spinal cord. There are some pretty distinctive marks on the base of a child's spine if they have this condition. And the first picture I looked at on the web could have been taken of one of my grandchildren. I took a big, deep breath and called my husband and said, I want you to look at something for me, and he did. And after we discussed it a little bit, he said, okay, call the kids in Okinawa. It's Friday afternoon here, Saturday morning in Okinawa. But he said, don't scare them. I don't want you to make them upset here. Just..." tell them to look into this. Now, he and I both knew that we had asked numerous doctors, actually on several different continents, about this little mark on my grandbaby's spine, and that all said, no problem, this is normal, don't worry about it. But the picture I saw on this neurosurgery website told me a different story. So I started trying to call my kiddos in Okinawa, And I couldn't get a hold of them and I tried and I tried and I tried and it was kind of unusual because in today's world of communication, no matter where they are in the world, one of them generally picks up. Um, After several hours, my daughter-in-law called me back and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, we've missed all of your phone calls. We were going to call you anyway anyway because we've been in the emergency room all day long. Because a couple of days ago, John Robert, my little two-year-old grandson, began to have trouble walking and began to tell us that his legs felt dead. J. Vernon McGee describes God's providence as the hand of God in the glove of human experience and that's exactly what was happening in the life of my sweet little John Robert. God's providence had begun to use another family on a different continent, had begun to use two grandmothers that absolutely adored their grandchildren and a picture on an obscure medical website to diagnose a serious medical condition halfway around the world that lots and lots of doctors had missed. Now, the word providence comes from the Latin, and it means foresight or making provision ahead of time. And when we apply that concept of providence to God, it takes on a much bigger definition. Because our God not only has the foresight and the ability to make provision, for any of his plans, he also in his omnipotence has the sovereign and infallible power to carry out anything that he sets out to do. God's providence allowed um, my darling little John Robert to be diagnosed pretty quickly and to be medevaced and to have neurosurgery before his spinal cord had permanent damage on it. And now I hear reports that he's the fastest three-year-old on his little three-year-old soccer team. And you know that baby that set all of this in motion that I got the phone call for? Of course, she's perfectly healthy and fine and doesn't have a thing wrong with her. Psalm 139 on your verse sheet is a great testimony of God's providence in our lives. Look at Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none. You know, God's work in our lives is real. It is real. It begins before our conception and goes through every day of our life. And the scriptures from beginning to end are a powerful story of God's divine providence, of how he made and governs the universe, of how he did form us in our mother's womb and ordained every single day of our life, of how he guides our circumstances, meets our needs, He sends adversity and he sends prosperity and he plans to redeem the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's divine providence for all of us. Our Bibles reveal that with wisdom and purpose and love and care, God directs all things and he accomplishes all things for his will. Psalm 103, 19, it's not on your verse sheet, but let me read it to you. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God's providence in our lives and in the world is real. Now, we're going to pick up our story of Joseph and his family today in chapter 45. And we're going to see that it's not simply enough to know that God's providence exists. Whether we see it or not, God's providence is real and it's in our lives and it's in the world. But when we recognize it in our lives and in the world around us, it does something remarkable. Recognizing God's providence transforms our faith. That's what we're going to see with Joseph and his family this morning as he reveals his identity to his brothers for the very first time. Look at chapter 45, verse one with me. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone get out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph... "'God has made me Lord of all Egypt. "'Come down to me, do not tarry. "'You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, "'and you shall be near me, "'you and your children and your children's children "'and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. "'There I will provide for you.'" For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. And you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. You know, after all the crummy stories that we've studied together in the last few weeks in Genesis, this one is... Awesome! It's a great uh, relief to be able to look at this great story. Last week, we saw that Joseph tested his brother's hearts, and what he discovered was they really were sorrowful and repentant, as God reminded them over and over again of their role and his mistreatment 22 years earlier. Because they have finally passed those heart tests, Joseph here reveals his identity to them for the first time, and it's an incredible scene. He weeps and cries so loudly that this huge palace that Pharaoh lives in, there's not a single person there that doesn't hear Joseph weep and wail as he tells his brothers about his identity, but look at the brothers. They're simply in shock. They just stand there and stare at him for them it's a resurrection moment. It's a resurrection moment. The brother that they mistreated and had just assumed was dead all these years and tried to put it out of their mind had essentially returned from the dead. You know, their reaction here is a lot like the disciples' reaction to Jesus' resurrection on that first Easter Sunday morning. They all kind of look around and think, could it be possible? Is it true But these brothers hear from Joseph's own lips that he is indeed alive and he is their brother? Now, that's not the only thing that surprises them, simply that he's alive. I think they're also surprised by the words that come out of his mouth because he doesn't curse them and blame them for all the suffering that he's had in the last 22 years. Instead of cursing them and blaming them and telling them how terrible his life has been, he tells them about God. He tells them about the great work God has done, how God has used all that's happened for good. He tells them of God's blessings in his life. That is miraculous. You know, as we read this story and see how Joseph handles this situation with his brother, there are two great lessons in here for us. <clears throat> and the first one is that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. They don't always go hand in hand. We are called to forgive others when they sin against us because God has forgiven us. Look at Matthew six, fourteen on your verse sheet. For if, you do, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And Colossians 3.13b says, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You know, forgiveness in our lives is not optional. We see from the scriptures here, we're called to forgive those who sin against us. But reconciliation with that offender only comes when we see evidence of repentance in their heart and life change. It is possible to forgive someone of sin and yet never be reconciled to a relationship with that person because they haven't changed their hurtful ways, have they? Joseph gets it right here in Genesis and it's great wisdom for us. He has forgiven them. But he reconciles with them after he sees their heart change. You know, we're interesting people because sometimes we think we have to withhold forgiveness simply because we can't have toxic people in our lives, but it's not forgiveness we need to withhold in those situations. We forgive no matter how toxic someone else's sin is. What we withhold in those toxic situations is reconciliation. You know, the second thing that Joseph gets so right here is that he recognizes the providence of God in his life. It doesn't just happen that he has providence of God in his life. He sees it. He gets it. He shares that with his brothers. He clearly understands that God has redeemed this tragedy in his life and used it for God's good purpose. Our God is sovereign. Our God is good. AND HE IS EXTENDED TO US AS HIS CREATED BEING'S FREE WILL, HASN'T HE? WE ALL HAVE BEEN GIVEN FREE WILL BY OUR GOD. AND PART OF THAT FREE WILL IS THAT HE ALLOWS US TO SIN. YOU KNOW, OUR GOD DOES NOT BLOCK OUR FREE WILL CHOICES, EVEN WHEN THEY INVOLVE SIN. HE DID NOT BLOCK THE FREE WILL CHOICE OF JOSEPH'S BROTHERS TO THROW HIM IN THE PIT AND SELL HIM INTO SLAVERY. But what he does promise us is that when we make those free will choices that are not good in our lives or good in the lives of others, that he can redeem them. He's a God of redemption. And no matter what the free will choices are we experience in our life, he can redeem them because our choices are never more powerful than our God. Look at Romans 8.28 on your verse sheet. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that is the great truth that Joseph understands and shares with his brothers here during their reunion. You know, his brothers sinned against him in an incredible way. But Joseph has long ago stopped focusing on the wrong done to him. And instead, he's chosen to focus on what God was doing with him and through him even as he suffered, even as he suffered. Joseph clearly sees the hand of God moving in the circumstances of his life and that has made all the difference. Now, this reunion scene continues, and Joseph then, after sharing uh, what God is doing through him and with him, he implores his brothers to hurry to Jacob, because Joseph wants his brothers to share with Jacob, not just the good news that he's alive, but the good news of the great work that God is doing in all of their lives. I want you to notice that he doesn't send them home to tell Jacob what they did to him, and I'm sure that's, what they're thinking about as they head home how do we explain this to dad he sends them home to tell Jacob about God's providence these 15 verses in the old testament I think are some of the best they are some of the best because Jacob Joseph's reconciliation with his brother's reminds us that someday we're gonna have a great reunion with our Lord Jesus as well, aren't we? And it's going to have been our sin that has caused his suffering, and how's he going to greet us? Just like Joseph greeted his brothers, he's going to forgive, greet us with forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. He's going to embrace us just like Joseph embraced his brothers. Joseph is also a really powerful example here that recognizing God's providence in our life is gonna keep us from bitterness. Keep us from bitterness. You know, bitterness robs us of so many things, and when we look around and recognize God's providence has been at work, we are free from bitterness, and then it gives us an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Joseph never once said to his brothers, Do you know how hard my life has been? Do you know what it was like being in a pit and in prison and falsely accused of so many things? Instead, Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you for a purpose. He has an eternal perspective. Look at John 16 with me on your verse sheet. 1633 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, no one would deny that Joseph has lived with trouble in his life But what Joseph did was take heart when he recognized that God's providence governs the world and governs our lives. Okay, so let's keep reading. Let's look at verse um, 16 here in 45. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, "'Joseph's brothers have come. "'It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. "'And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Say to your brothers, "'Do this, load your beasts, "'go back to the land of Cana, "'and take your father and your households, "'and come to me, "'and I will give you the best of the land in Egypt, "'and you shall eat the fat of the land.'" And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land in Egypt is yours. You know, Pharaoh doesn't want to be left out of the party here, does he? He's heard all this commotion. He's heard the reunion and he wants to be a part of it. And so he gives Joseph a royal command here. He tells him... um, that Joseph's family is supposed to return and have the best that Egypt has to offer. You know, it would probably have been enough for him just to allow them to return to Egypt. But no, he offers them the best of everything. He even tells them, um, don't worry about bringing any of your stuff. Just leave it all there. Come on, we've got better stuff here in Egypt. You know, obviously God's hand is still moving in the circumstances of life here. This time, God's providence is going to alter Jacob's life in future drastically. Um, you know, so Joseph does what the Pharaoh commands him to do, and he packs up the uh, wagons in Egypt. He gives more generously to Benjamin. He sends 20 donkeys of provisions back to his father, Jacob, But even in his generosity, as he's all excited, I imagine, about getting them ready to go and be able to provide for them, he doesn't forget who his brothers are, does he? He still is wise. He knows who he's dealing with here. Look at verse 24 with me. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said, Do not quarrel along the way. You know, Joseph... Rests in God's providence. That's evident here. And because Joseph rests in God's providence, he's let go of the pain of the past. And he really, truly wants that for his brothers too. He knows that this journey home could be a time when away from him, they begin to point fingers. They begin to say to each other, well, you were the ringleader here. No, you're the one that threw him in the pit. No, you're the one that stopped the slave traders and took the money um, that's what we do, isn't it, when sin is swirling around and causing dysfunction in our life. We have difficulty letting go of the guilt and the pain. That's what Wendy talked about last week and her great lesson. It traps us. It traps us, but not Joseph. Joseph is not trapped in anything to do with his past What Joseph is doing is looking forward. He knows God's best. And he doesn't just want it for himself. He wants the best of God's providence and the life of his family as well. So let's read what happens when they actually reach Jacob. Look down to verse 25 in chapter 45. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Cana and to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart went numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. You know, Joseph still doesn't really trust his own sons, does he? He's stunned when they start into this tale about Joseph being alive. Um, It it says here he goes numb. I think he thinks, stop, I can't talk about this anymore. I don't want to hear it. But all of a sudden as he hears Joseph's words of God's providence, which it says they relay to him all of Joseph's words. They relay to him what Joseph has to say about God's work in their future and in their lives. And as he hears those words of God's providence from Joseph, he's revived His heart leaps, and for the first time in a long time, Jacob's life changes in the blink of an eye, just like that. The son he's grieved over for the last 22 years is not dead. In fact, he's a powerful, successful man in Egypt, and God is using that to influence the future of his family. You know, Joseph's summons to his family right here is really a turning point in Jacob's life. Jacob's life has been a series of ups and downs with God. It's been a series of trusting God and then moving away from God. It's been a series of doing the right thing and then doing the wrong thing. But right here, as he hears Joseph's words about God's providence, it's a new beginning for him. For Jacob, it offers hope hope that he hasn't had in a long time. It also offers freedom from grief and from guilt that he has over his own life. He's been trapped in it. Jacob has been trapped in it. Um, It also offers fulfillment in God's prediction in Genesis 15. Look at Genesis 15 on your verse sheet. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but i will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they will come out with great uh, possessions so jacob does embrace this turning point uh, that God's providence has brought and he heads off to Egypt even probably knowing that this prediction that God had given to Abraham, he still goes because he he knows that Joseph is waiting for him and he knows that Joseph trusts God's providence. On the way, he makes an interesting stop. He stops before he leaves the land of Cana in Beersheba where his father Isaac had previously built an altar and it's there that God speaks to him in a vision before he leaves Canaan look at 46 verses 1 through 5 so Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said Jacob Jacob and he said here I am Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You know, Jacob's family had a history with Egypt, didn't they? Uh, If you think back to when we looked at Genesis 12 together, we saw that Abraham went down to Egypt in a famine, And he got himself in trouble with Pharaoh and with God by lying about his beautiful wife, Sarah, calling her his sister. And then in Genesis chapter 26, another famine moment, God comes to Isaac and says, don't go down to uh, Egypt. So it's not really surprising that now that Jacob has been summoned to Egypt by what appears to be God's providence God stops and is so gracious and kind and reassures him not only that he's supposed to go to Egypt he tells him not to be afraid he says I'm going with you and I'm going to bring you back God's reassurance helps Jacob continue to look forward to his great future in Egypt and not backward on the rest of his life where there had been plenty of moments that he didn't want to share with God because he was not very proud of them. Um, Jacob was leaving the land of Cana, but he was leaving with this picture of his future that God himself had given him here, a picture of God's protection and prosperity, a picture of God eventually returning his people to the land of Cana, Jacob was leaving Cana, but he was not leaving God. And God made sure that Jacob knew that. And the proof that God goes with him into Egypt is actually his reunion with Joseph. Because it's a reunion that only God could have orchestrated in Egypt. Look at chapter 46, drop your eyes down to verse 28 and 30. HE HAD SENT JUDAH AHEAD OF HIM TO JOSEPH TO SHOW THE WAY BEFORE HIM IN GOSHEN, AND THEY CAME INTO THE LAND OF GOSHEN. THEN JOSEPH PREPARED HIS CHARIOT AND WENT UP TO MEET ISRAEL HIS FATHER IN GOSHEN. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. This is jo- Jacob's incredible start to his new life in Egypt where God goes with him, where God will bring him back again. Verse 29 says, Joseph wept for a good while here. And I have to, after studying this, think that this was even more emotional for Joseph than reuniting with his brothers. He's looking back on these 22 years as he weeps and thinking about all the times that he missed with his father, all the times that he went through suffering and didn't have a family to encourage him and to be there with him. Joseph is weeping and looking back at those 22 years, but not Jacob, not Jacob. What we see about Jacob is pretty amazing. Jacob is not looking back at those 22 years because now that he holds his son, Joseph, what we see here is that he's only looking to the next 20 years that he's going to have with Joseph. When he says in verse 30 let me die now that I've seen your face, he's not being morbid. He's not laying down on the side of the road and crossing his arms and saying it's over. What he's really saying here is I'm looking forward to the future. God holds amazing things to me obviously simply because he's restored me to you. He's looking forward to living out his life in peace with Joseph back by his side. God's providence has changed Jacob's life. We have one more great look at Jacob um, as we talk about God's providence in his life. And that is when Joseph introduces him to the Pharaoh. Turn over to forty-seven, chapter 47 and look at verse 7 with me. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to him, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. You know, when Joseph presents Jacob to Pharaoh here, this is a pretty unique and interesting conversation. You would expect Jacob maybe to just bow and not have a lot to say, but what we see him doing here, he's a foreigner in a foreign country, and he worships a foreign god, a god that Egypt does not worship. They were pagans, But he's bold enough in his faith right here to bless Pharaoh not once, but twice. He blesses him. He asks God's blessing on him when he comes in to meet Pharaoh. And then he asks God's blessing on him again when he leaves. And in between, he and Pharaoh have this funny little conversation about Jacob's life. Here he is meeting probably the most powerful ruler in the world. And Jacob acknowledges that his past has not exactly been exemplary. Here. He knows what his life has looked like. And for all the years that he lived with being a deceiver, he's not deceiving anyone here. He is being truthful with Pharaoh. His blessings on Pharaoh show us what's important to Jacob now. It's not deceiving and gaining for himself like we saw in the first of Jacob's life. What's important to him now? after being reunited with Joseph, after having God's hand of providence clearly in that reunion, it's his faith, it's his faith. And he's so amazed at what God has done by bringing him to Egypt, reuniting his whole family, healing all of those emotions that um, he's bold enough to call on God for for the blessing of a pagan ruler. You know, Jacob's life, if you think back on all we've learned about Jacob's life, is just as much a testimony to God's providence as Joseph's was. God had given Rebekah a prophecy about Jacob's life before he was even born. God's hand was always in the glove of Jacob's life, even when he was deceiving and being deceived. But when Joseph was finally restored to him, closer to the end of his life and he heard joseph's testimony of god's providence it's probably the first time that jacob has recognized god's providence in his own life and the significance of that every time jacob looks at joseph now he's going to be reminded of God's great work in his life and look forward to God's whole plan for his family. I talked with my little daughter-in-law last night who lives in Okinawa. It's her son that had the surgery for the tethered spinal cord. And she started to cry. And she said, every time I see him walk and I run, I remember who my God is. That's Jacob right here. He'll never look at Joseph without remembering the providence of God in his life. Look at Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on your verse sheet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. You know, this could have been Jacob's life verse. It's been totally true about his life every day since before he was born. But it wasn't until he's reunited with Joseph and he hears Joseph's testimony of God's providence that he recognizes this is what God has been doing in his life. Okay, now God's providence has certainly been big and real in Joseph's life and in Jacob's life. BUT IT'S ALSO BIG AND REAL IN JACOB'S FAMILY'S LIFE. SO LET'S READ ABOUT THAT FOR JUST A MINUTE BECAUSE IT IS OF COURSE HIS SONS THAT ARE GOING TO BECOME THE 12 TRIBES OF ISRAEL. God's hand is moving in the glove that is the nation of Israel as they make this move to Egypt. Their time in Egypt was not a random thing. It was foretold by God. We read about that a few minutes earlier. God had also told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he was going to make them a great nation and multiply their offspring. And beginning in chapter 46, verse eight, we see God stirring that pot. We're not going to read all of it, but If you go back and read it, there's an accounting of every name of the sons and the daughter-in-laws and the children and the grandchildren that make the move to Egypt. And we discover back here in chapter 46 that all 70 of Jacob's family come. They don't leave anybody behind. There's no one that says eh, I don't think I really want to live in Egypt. They all pack up and come and it is from these 70 people that God is going to multiply and make fruitful and develop the nation of Israel. You know God has protected these 70 from the famine to preserve a future for them um, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just protect them and preserve them. He also prospers them. Look um, in chapter 46 with verse, at verse 31 with me. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Cana have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth. Even until now, Both we and our fathers in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh. My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess. Have come to the land of Cana. And they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers. What's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh. Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were they said to Pharaoh we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Cana and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen then Pharaoh said to Joseph your father and your brothers have come to you the land of Egypt is before you settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my... Livestock. You know, Goshen is part of Egypt. It's located in the eastern part of the Nile Delta, in the northern part of Egypt, up bordering the Mediterranean Sea. Egypt was an agricultural society built around this fertile Nile River. They could grow anything and grow it in abundance, except, I believe, when God has brought a famine on them. They had an organized system of crops and fields that they um, took great care of. it, And so consequently, the Egyptian society didn't think much of the nomads that were herders, um, that kept livestock and that traveled around for grazing. Um, They particularly didn't think well of shepherds. Shepherds were at the very bottom of the animal livestock herder list. So Joseph is trying to protect their reputations here with Pharaoh when he says, hey, when you go in, you can say you're livestock herders, but don't tell them you're shepherds. And, of course, he chooses five of them, and they're not very good at following directions, are they? Because the very first thing they say to him is, yeah, we're shepherds. But the great news about having God's providence in your life is that he can even take your mistakes and turn it into a good thing. And that's what he does here because he, he allows their vocation as livestock herders and shepherds to... Um, to protect them. he Since they are herders and shepherds, they can't live around where the crops and the fields and the rest of the Egyptian society dwells. So they're put up north in the land of Goshen, which was actually great and fertile grazing land. So what does God do here? He uses their vocation to separate them from the Egyptian society. It not only protects them from idol worship, it protects them from intermarriage, and it allows them to develop a distinct national identity. So as those 70 grow into millions, as we're gonna see um, probably next year when we might study Exodus together, we're going to see that um, they maintain their sense of national identity Identity they don't integrate into the Egyptian society and become lost. Now, when you read this text about Joseph's family, it's pretty unclear whether they actually recognize what God is doing for them here. Now, I have to think surely some of them picked up on the fact that God has allowed us to be separated here, but they could be giving the credit to Joseph here because he has been their benefactor, or even um, Pharaoh and the lesson here for us as we look at Jacob's family not knowing whether they recognize God's providence or not is that we need to make sure in our busy lives that we recognize God's providence when he does things for us that protect us and prosper us we need not to give credit to our great work ethic or perhaps the fact that we just found that real estate ad before anybody else did and snapped up that great house we need to be looking for God's um, great providence in our life, because when we recognize it, what happens? We learn to trust him, and we depend on him more. Then the next decision we have to make, we're not going to be worried about having to move to Egypt, because we know that our God is Trustworthy, and we can depend on him. A couple of weeks ago when Lynn taught, she mentioned a ministry that Christ Chapel has in downtown Fort Worth. It's called Common Ground, our women's ministry. And some of our great women have been teaching Bible studies and having discipleship groups and seeker opportunities for the last 10 years for the women of downtown Fort Worth. We've been doing it from this little bitty, obscure office space that's tucked into Um, corner of Sundance Square Courtyard. I mean, first you have to know that the courtyard is there. Then you have to know how to get in there to find this little office space. You practically need a GPS guide to get into common ground. But you know, our God is great and good. And in his providence, he recently moved in the glove of the ministry that is common ground, and provided us with a great space. If someone had come to me and said, write down what you want for common ground, I wouldn't have written down as many things as God has Providence has provided for us. We're going to have, we've already moved into it. We'll have our first meeting downtown on May 4th. It's twice as big. It's in the middle of a busy street in downtown Fort Worth. We're very visible so that anybody that walks by knows there's a Bible study being taught in there. They can come in and join us. I'm happy to say that our common ground team, our ministry team and our lay leaders have not missed God's providence and all of this it has been um, an opportunity to teach all of us that no matter what we're doing our personal lives or our ministries we can trust him and we can depend upon him and i am never going to walk into common ground again and think whoa um, god's not part of this because god is definitely part of common ground look at proverbs 3 5 and 6 on your verse sheet Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, God's providence uh, is not just in our personal lives. It also is throughout the whole world. God's providence governs the whole world. His His providence is also at work in the lives of the Egyptian people as he brings Jacob and his family into their country. We saw in chapter 46 how Jacob asked for God's blessing on Pharaoh, not once but twice, and we see the result of that blessing in chapter 47 we're not going to turn there i hope you read it in your homework but you already know that joseph's wise administration blesses not only the people of egypt but blesses pharaoh what happens is he has foreseen this famine through god's providence first he sells the people grain uh, when they run out of grain. Then when they run out of money, he takes their livestock and gives them food. Then when they run out of livestock, he manages to take their land, yet give them seeds so that they can plant crops. Verse 25 tells us how the people of Egypt feel about God, God's providence in their life in bringing Joseph as their administrator. Look in 47, verse 25, And they, meaning the Egyptians, said to Joseph, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. You know, they recognize that essentially Joseph, of course, provided by God, is the savior of their world. And they're grateful. Joseph's providential presence in Egypt shows us God's providence is not just for Jacob and Joseph and the nation of Israel, it's also in the world. You know, no matter what the nightly news tells us every single night, the hand of God is at work in the glove of world events. Look at Daniel 2.21 on your verse sheet. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Sometimes I feel like our world is out of control, but certainly it is not. God's hand is still in the glove of human history and recognizing that he does indeed um, govern the universe and everything in it actually opens our eyes so that we can see that work of God out in the world. I saw incredible footage this last week. I don't know whether y'all saw this or not, but it was of the earthquake that had happened in Japan and it was just rubble everywhere and there was television footage of these rescue workers and they were digging through what was utter devastation. And underneath that heavy pile of rubble, out they pulled a newborn baby wrapped in a swaddled blanket, um, crying because it was hungry, but perfectly healthy and fine. Otherwise, apparently, um, when we recognize God's providence is at work in the world, we see his grace and mercy in places we don't expect to see it. Now, our final look at providence before we finish today has to be a look at God's providence in our own lives because as we've studied Genesis, and I've heard so many of you testify to this, every chapter of Genesis points to God's work in our lives. The story of Joseph is actually a great foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. As Joseph suffers from the sins of others and then embraces those same sinners with forgiveness, and it's the it's. Joseph's story of how God's providence worked through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to raise up the 12 tribes of Israel and preserve the line of Judah through which Jesus would eventually be born. Because of that, Joseph's story of God's providence has a direct link to each one of us today through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a story that has brought God's providence into our lives. You know, Joseph's story is also God's way of reminding us that he's providentially at work in our lives as well. Joseph's story is not an anomaly of God's providence. It's not a one in a million. He did that for Joseph, but not for anyone else. God's providence is the norm in our lives. It's the everyday truth. But just like Joseph, we have to recognize it. Um, We have to recognize that God's hand is surely and firmly in our lives. And when we do, it teaches us to wait for him. Just like Joseph waited in that pit for God's providence to change his life. It gives us hope and courage because we know that God has not forgotten us no matter how our suffering how hard our suffering gets but that he will use our suffering for his purpose just like joseph and it inspires us to pray for his intervention in every circumstance of our life because we've seen joseph go from the pit and the prison to being the supreme ruler in egypt through god's plan Corrie Ten Boom suffered for years in a German prison camp, but even in her suffering, she never denied God's providence in her life. And she wrote a poem called Life is But a Weaver. You've probably heard it. It says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth, weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Joseph and Jacob would say amen. Pray with me. Father, you're a great and a gracious God. We do acknowledge and trust your providence in our lives. Father, we pray that you would continue to be gracious and merciful to each one of us. Continue to make your truth live and real in all of our lives. I thank you for these women. I ask that you would put your hand of favor and grace and mercy on them. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.